Welcome to the forum, live streamed worldwide from the Leadership Studio at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I'm Dean Michelle Williams. The forum is a collaboration between the Harvard Chan School and independent news media. Each program features a panel of experts addressing some of today's most pressing public health issues. The forum is one way the school advances the frontiers of public health and makes scientific insights accessible to policymakers and the public. I hope you find this program engaging and informative. Thank you for joining us. Welcome, my name is George Zornick. I'm a deputy enterprise editor at HuffPost on the politics team. I'm also today's moderator. Uh, to our panelists, starting from my immediate right, David Hemingway, a professor of health policy at the Harvard Chan School, Hannah Sachs, an internist at Mass General and co-director of the MGH Center for Gun Violence Prevention, and Ted Strickland, the 68th governor of Ohio. Joining us remotely is Mike McLively, a senior staff attorney and Urban Gun Violence Initiative Director at the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. This event is being prevented, uh, presented jointly with HuffPost. We are streaming live on the forum, also on Facebook and YouTube. At the end, we're going to have a brief Q&A. You can email questions starting now to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. Um, we're here today because gun violence kills 36,000 Americans each year. That's about 100 a day on average. It injures 100,000 more, many of whom live with uh, lifelong injuries, debilitating medical costs. Um, often this sort of daily grind of gun violence is punctuated by mass shootings. There was one yesterday in New Jersey as we were all preparing for this event. Um, you know, as someone who has covered gun violence for quite a long time, both as a reporter and an editor, there's kind of a grim, almost Groundhog's Day feel to these kinds of, uh, particularly mass shootings, where you get the news alert that a public place, there's been gunfire, the casualty count climbs, there are uh, families on the news, there are calls from politicians to change the system that ultimately often go nowhere, and it feels like everyone just sort of forgets about it until you get the next news alert. And I feel like this is a frustration that is felt uh, by, also by uh, people in the medical field, uh, people who study this problem, and politicians who are working to change it from within. But today we're here to look at some practical solutions, both to highlight some of the things that have happened and have improved in gun policy over the years, and to talk about some of the, the paths forward. Um, but first, we're going to watch a clip from the Gifford Center. I spent a lifetime in the military. 39 years in America's Air Force. Defending our Constitution. Under both Democratic and Republican presidents. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And the ethos was to protect other Americans against any threat. 33,000 Americans lost their lives last year to gun violence. That's a threat. We've had more Americans killed in high schools in this country in the last year than been killed in Afghanistan. We have become desensitized to the killings. We've seen the weapons culture get out of control. There are some weapons out there that frankly, nobody should have access to. And actually, there are some people out there who should never have access to any weapons. This isn't hunting. This isn't gun collecting. This is murder. It's killing. If we don't find a way to stop that, there's something wrong with us as a society. Gun safety should not be a partisan issue. It should be an American issue. It's okay to have reasonable gun control without violating your Second Amendment right. We've made it a binary choice of guns or no guns. That's not the choice. We can address this problem if we choose to. It's time for us to look at ourselves in the mirror. We've tackled big things before. We can tackle this and survive. I've got to say as a veteran, when it comes to preventing gun violence, there's no other side. There's no other side. There's no other side. Mm -hmm. 
So David, that video was kind of a call to reframe the conversation around guns. How do you see that from a public health perspective? Um, so something I just want to emphasize is that uh, talking about successes, if we looked at any other high-income country, and there's more than two dozen other high-income countries, they do much, much better than we do. Some people think that the United States is a violent country, but compared to these other countries, we're an average country in terms of crime and violence. If you look at any other high-income country, we are average uh, in terms of uh, assaults, in terms of burglary, in terms of sexual assaults, in terms of robbery. But what makes us different is, is we have so many guns, particularly handguns and military weapons, that we have an enormous gun problem. And the, the problem, uh, you, you can just look at the numbers. If you compare the United States to the other high-income countries, uh, I looked just, just looking at the five to 14-year-olds, the K through eight students. Um, it's hard to blame the victim here, and uh, American kids are not just you know twice as likely to be murdered with a gun as children in, say, uh, France or Italy or Norway, but not even 10 times, 29 times more likely. Uh, our non-firearm homicide rate is average. Our firearm suicide rate is nine times higher for these children. Our accidental gun death rate is 21 times higher than these children. So we just have this enormous problem. And if we did anything like these other countries, uh, we could make a big uh, step in try trying to solve the problem. Um, in terms of the public health approach, the public health, we've had so many successes uh, from tobacco control to motor vehicle uh, uh, crash reduction. And I think a big part of the public health approach is trying to get everyone involved. First, everyone has to admit there is a big problem, and then people and institutions have to step up. State governments have to do more. They've done, for the first time ever, three state governments now are funding gun research uh, because the federal government isn't. Uh, foundations have to step up more. Now we have a couple more foundations who are finally willing to fund gun research. Universities are starting to do more. For example, this forum is an example. Um, hospitals are doing much more. Hannah can talk about that. Uh, one of the things we've done is we've found a common ground with a lot of gun advocates, uh, uh, people who work in gun shops, people who work in gun ranges, people who are gun trainers, and we're working with them pretty successfully at trying to reduce gun suicide. So there's a lot of things that can be done uh, as collectively uh, if we get everyone involved and everyone uh, is on the same page trying to do things. So, Hannah, speaking of getting everyone engaged, um, you work a lot on getting the medical community engaged. In fact, when I've been covering uh, some, some gun uh, rallies like the March for Lives in D.C., I, I've encountered medical professionals who were just marching along with everybody else. Tell us a little bit about how the medical community is, is uh, getting engaged and, and not staying in their lane, so to speak. I would say we're staying firmly in our lane, uh, uh, George. I mean, this issue touches everyone. It touches so many people, and I think that's one of the issues that, that more and more people are really, really coming to. Um, this Saturday marks seven years since, since Newtown, since Sandy Hook, when, when my cousin Mark, his son Daniel, was, was killed uh, at Sandy Hook. And that was seven years ago on, on Saturday, which is really un, unfathomable, unbelievable in so many ways. And as I was... Um, you know, witnessing that, and um, I was a physician. You know, I was a, I'm a doctor, and I was sitting there thinking about gun violence, and this is this issue that had now devastated my family, that devastated so many of my patients' families, and I was thinking about gun violence and comparing it to the way we're taught to think about so many other issues that affect our patients, and there was this massive disconnect. And we started working. We started recognizing what we could do, what, what can clinicians do, how do we think about talking with patients about firearm safety, how do we think about really bringing gun violence prevention to the bedside, to clinical care. And in so many ways, I think we saw that catalyzed about a year ago, when, as, as you're hinting at, when the NRA took to, took to the, the, the force that is Twitter and uh, recommended the doctors stay in their lane. And the outpouring, the response that you saw, I mean, it was visceral, the response that you saw to that. And I think what it made people realize was this affects everyone across medicine. Yes, it's our emergency medicine physicians and our trauma surgeons and our nurses and others on the front lines caring for patients who are coming into our emergency departments, but it's our rehab specialists that are working with survivors months and years after the fact. It's our infectious disease doctors who are managing wound complications and, and other infections. 
it's our uh, neurologists and others because gunshot wounds are one of the leading causes of spinal cord injuries. It's all of us in general medicine and primary care who are caring for people who suffer this violence or witness this violence and are, are trying to learn how we can best manage the mental health and the physical uh, uh, impacts and fallout from, from these injuries. And there is so much that, that we can do that, that really hasn't been done. And, and so many of us have been, have been um, saying we, we've got we've to get involved, we've got to take that step. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to go to Mike on the, on the video link here. You know, there's been an impression uh, often fostered by the media that since Newtown, nothing has changed, nothing's got done, but that's not really quite true, is it? Can you explain to us some of the things that you've seen and you've monitored uh, both at the state and federal level? Right. We've seen enormous change in the last few years and stakeholders coming to this issue uh, in droves. And it's really been an impressive showing. So I think there's a few different indicators that we've seen progress on this issue. The first is just at the federal level. Uh, the House earlier this year passed for the first time in many years uh, a comprehensive background checks measure. And so that's clear in the House, which is a big deal. It's now sitting in front of the Senate. Uh, where we, you know, it's unlikely to move forward in the immediate future, but that is a major step forward. And I think if you look at the presidential debate going on on the Democratic side right now, we're seeing presidential candidates talking about this issue and a multitude of solutions in a way that a few years ago they were not. So we have federal legislators and policymakers who are paying attention. Uh, and again, the fact that this bill passed the House is, is a major deal. Then at the state level, there has been a ton of action, uh, even just in the last year, dozens and dozens of uh, gun control and gun safety laws have passed through our states, including in states like Florida and Nevada. And just to give you an example, we've seen uh, now 18 states have enacted what are called extreme risk protection order laws, which allow law enforcement and people to petition a court uh, to temporarily disarm people who pose a threat to themselves or others. So states are moving on this issue in an unprecedented way, which gives us a lot of optimism. Uh, and we've also seen a huge investment in community-based violence reduction in an intervention program, which I think I can talk about later in the program. Uh, and I think finally, just the movement for addressing gun violence is the strongest it's ever been in the history of our country. And I think that's reflected uh, and the things that I've just said. And you know, we've seen students come out in, in unprecedented numbers, especially in the wake of the Parkland shooting last year. Uh, we've seen doctors, people from the medical profession. And really, I think the takeaway is for everyone, there, there is no lane that we need to stay in when it comes to violence. This is everyone's issue. This is our country's issue. It affects our schools. It affects our communities uh, across the board. And so I think there's a lot of room to be hopeful. We still have a ton of work to do. But there's been real significant progress, and I think more and more people from both sides of the aisle are realizing we can address this issue together as a community. So that's very encouraging. Yeah, so Ted, you know, you have a lot of experience on this. You've seen it at the state level as governor of Ohio and as a Senate candidate. H how has the conversation around guns changed from when you, you first got into politics to, to now? Well, thankfully, it has changed, I think. Um, an example, Ohio, I think, would be considered a pro-gun state. The NRA is very influential in Ohio. But Ohio, like too many other states, recently experienced a mass shooting in Dayton, Ohio. And Governor DeWine, who's a Republican governor, uh, went to Dayton to speak to that, uh, that group of people. And they started chanting, not in an angry way, but they just started chanting, do something, do something. So the governor said, I'm going to do something. And he introduced 17 measures, which he considered to be relevant to this gun safety issue. Among them, comprehensive background checks, a red, a red flag law. I was, I was really impressed. I sent the governor an email saying, Governor, congratulations, you've shown real leadership and courage here. Now, by the time that legislation actually was introduced, it had been hugely modified. Um, changed in a way that did not make it meaningless, but made it less meaningful. And, um, but this is my point. A Republican governor in a strong state where the NRA has great influence introduced legislation dealing with gun violence. And uh, I think that's a shift. And I think it, it, it indicates that there is a shift in, in the public attitude and in the public conversation about guns and gun violence. And it's, it's a, perhaps a small step, 
but it's a meaningful step. And I think what we're seeing is that, uh, and I hope this is true, that we're getting away from the argument, the polarizing argument that I'm pro-gun or anti-gun. And we're looking at, at this issue of violence and death as a public health issue, and we're trying to look for solutions that are consistent with what we would do uh, as a public health community in dealing with other major issues that confront our people and endanger them or cost the lives and so on. So I, I'm, I'm encouraged. I think there is a shift in, in public consciousness about this problem. And uh, that doesn't mean we haven't got a long way to go. Yeah, surely, and I'm glad you mentioned solutions because I think that is a big takeaway uh, that we want people to come away from today with is, is focusing on things that people who have been studying this issue say can really uh, help solve the problem, uh, save lives. So I I'd like to shift into that, but first we are going to watch another video from the Gifford Center. My name is Megan McGuire. My name is Mark Orfanos. Patricia Mesh. Gregory Jackson. I live in Chicago, Illinois. Tucson, Arizona. Parkland, Florida. Antioch, Tennessee. Thousand Oaks, California. He died in the borderline mass shooting. I was injured at the Parkland shooting. We went to Waffle House. He shot probably over 16 rounds. Shot her three times. He shot me in the back. He was shot and killed uh, getting ready for band rehearsal at church. He was 23 years old. We need background checks. Background checks. Background checks for each and every gun sale. It's past time for Congress to act. Congress, do your job. Do your job. It's just common sense. This is the moment we've been fighting for. So Mike, I'll go to you. Can you give us a, a kind of a detailed rundown of the status of background checks in the country, both at the state level and, you know, you mentioned a bit about the movement in Congress, but are there signs, or is there signs of hope for this? Sure, I think there definitely are. So the, the deal with this at the federal level is that we do have background checks, but they are not comprehensive by any means. And that's because current under current federal law, a background check is only required if you're going to purchase a gun at a gun, a licensed gun dealer. If, there, if you are purchasing a gun through a private transaction, you don't have to go through a background check. So you can imagine that someone who's prohibited under law by possessing a firearm, say because of a felony conviction, can just make the decision, well, I'm going to obtain a firearm through a private sale, uh, and they don't have to undergo a background check. So we've got massive loopholes in the system. The good news is that a number of states, almost 30 states, have taken steps to plug those loopholes and have enacted comprehensive background checks at the state level. But until this is enacted across the country, uh, we still have a glaring loophole in our in our system. And I think the last thing I would say is just to point out that you know background checks are one piece of the puzzle, but they're certainly not you know the end all be all for for ending gun violence. We need to have that bare minimum policy in place. But gun violence is such a complex issue. We we need more strategies and policies on top of background checks. But we do seem to be moving in the right direction on that issue. And I think it's only a matter of time before at the federal level we finally see universal background checks. And I'd like to unpack that point a little bit because you often hear, particularly after mass shootings, people will say, well, you know, the shooter obtained the gun legally, so we don't really need background checks. But can you explain to people how they do actually deter violence nationwide? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for one, we've seen there's data showing that the background check system has blocked millions and millions of people from obtaining firearms. And I think the point about people who are not prohibited is a, is a point that speaks to the need for other policies like the extreme risk, risk protection order. So someone who legally purchases a gun and then later they is fired from their job and is showing signs of uh, you know being mentally unwell and making threats. That's someone who would clear a background check, but we need tools in place to be able to temporarily disarm people like that. And that's what the extreme risk protection order allows us to do. So we need uh, points of protection at different spaces along the continuum, not just at the point when someone would purchase uh, a gun. Uh, so, David, I want to turn to you. I know it's something you've looked at. You know, one way that uh, big gun manufacturers and, and their lobbies in Washington have been successful is to uh, 
insulate themselves from liability for a lot of, of the harm that their product causes when used as intended. Um, can you talk a little bit about how they've done that and ways that uh, that liability can be used to kind of reduce violence? Yeah. So, so liability really matters both in increasing and decreasing violence. Um, in the tobacco area, uh, liability laws really were effective in trying to reduce smoking because you could find, figure out, uh, get into the corporations and see what they were really saying and doing. Uh, and uh, the gun lobby was very successful at getting gun manufacturers to be immune from most of these suits. Mm -hmm. But uh, one of the things I would like to see, for example, is strict liability for gun owners. Uh, uh, guns are brought into this country. Um, uh, initially, every gun is a legal gun. And somehow in this country, they get into uh, completely wrong hands. Uh, and, uh, and how does this happen? One of the ways this happens is that gun owners, some are very responsible, but many aren't. Uh, and the problem is we uh, think we have something like 300,000 guns a year stolen, uh, which is one way that uh, people uh, who should not have guns uh, make it really easy to get guns. If we had um, uh, young people in Boston throwing hand grenades at each other and blowing up things, we'd say, where did they get those hand grenades? And they say, oh, somebody bought these hand grenades and oh, they just left them around and, mm -hmm. and they have no responsibility anymore for these hand grenades. They're not mine, they're illegal hand grenades now that somebody stole them. And we say, no, one of the clear ways which guns get into the wrong hands in the United States uh, is through theft, is through people uh, not keeping their guns as secure as they should. And we need to stop this easy flow of guns into the wrong hands. Uh, you know, the, the, res the responsibility lies with gun owners for sure, but, but manufacturers as well. And, and one of the interesting court cases I'm sure you're aware of, uh, speaking of the anniversary of Newtown, is some of the families are suing Remington Arms Company. Um, and that has actually seems to have punched through peak law. Can you, can you exp explain what that law is and sort of how it got passed? Um, so, so, so the law is, is basically makes it incredibly hard for, to find uh, a manufacturer at fault uh, for doing anything in the gun area. Uh, it's very different than um, other manufacturers. Uh, and so uh, what you, you want to do is say, if somebody's manufacturing a firearm which is only used for mass shootings and really has no other uh, good purpose, uh, and that gun is being used continuously uh, for, for mass shootings and killing lots of innocent people, what is the best way to reduce that problem? And in public health, it's not, oh, let's wait till the last second before the person pulls the trigger. Let's make it so, let's go upstream and make it much harder for someone who should clearly not have a gun. And, and it's not clear why some people, anybody should have certain kinds of military weapons. Um, do not have this. And so you really want to reduce the manufacture of, for example, large capacity magazines. We just did a study and it really looks like uh, shooters with large capacity magazines kill lots, lots more people. And you could imagine if, if you wanted to be a mass shooter and all you had was, I don't know, a musket, uh, how many people you could kill, and it's not very many. And the, and the more we allow the manufacture of uh, extreme military weapons, the more the mass shootings will kill additional people. Yeah, I know from a reporting perspective, a lot of reporters are interested in this case, not only what the final disposition is, but if this even gets into discovery right. and we start to learn how right. these companies, yep. what okay. they know about the lethality of the guns that they manufacture, how they market it, um, should be pretty interesting. Right. And, and that was the key in, in I think, in the tobacco area was getting mm -hmm. discovery. Definitely. Uh, Hannah, I want to turn to you because you're involved in a pretty interesting uh, project around hospital data collection. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to people what that is and, and how it might uh, mitigate violence? Absolutely. And our, our premise on this is simple, that good clinical interventions have to be based and the foundation has to be in, in good data. And in so many ways, that, that's been lacking. One stark example is that you know CDC in this country doesn't really track in any accurate way non-fatal injuries. We track fatal injuries very well, and non-fatal injuries were not. And as clinicians, people who survive these injuries, those are our lifelong patients. And so much of the information about how we best care for those patients, how we best uh, develop and expand violence intervention and advocacy programs to interrupt those cycles of violence, how we best support people who have suffered or witnessed that violence and take on the, the mental health and the physical uh, sequelae of these injuries, all of that has to start with, with better data. And we're working on collecting those data within our own hospital system, uh, working at the statewide level and in other states that, that um, have better data than we, than we do here in Massachusetts so far. 
uh, you know, armed with this data, how is it that you are helping doctors talk to patients about uh, guns in the home, the danger of guns? I think that's been a, a critical place. And first of all, we started by, by looking inward and saying, how often do we do this already? Are we, are we any good at this? And it probably won't surprise uh, most people up here that, that we weren't, that many patients, people were coming into our hospitals in moments of crisis. And we, our doctors were not having conversations about those patients, with, about firearm safety with those patients. And um, so we started building an educational, educational program, an educational intervention, teaching our clinicians how to talk about uh, guns in a culturally competent way with, with patients. And this isn't work we do alone. This is every department in the hospital got involved. Every department in hospitals across the city have, have been involved. And um, I think that's been uh, uh, an amazing opportunity to take, to take one step to say we have to change the way we um, teach clinicians about this issue, have to change the scope of who is um, expected to be involved and, and to be knowledgeable in this space, and that there's a role that we all have to play, and, and that's what we're doing. So, so I guess what you mean is like a doctor, it would be typical for a doctor to ask someone, uh, do they smoke? Uh, what other kind of harmful activities do they have? You're saying that, that guns should be part of that conversation. Is there a gun in the home? Absolutely. This isn't a frame shift creating a brand new sort of clinical domain for clinicians. Doctors ask every day a lot of questions about home safety, and this is just one more that really needs to be asked. The same way doctors hand out every day. We have condoms in our clinic. We have bike helmets. Now we have cable gun locks that, that we can hand out and, and offer to patients. Mm -hmm. this, this idea of understanding who's at, who's at risk for, for harm or injury and think, thinking about what we can do to intervene, that's what we do every day, and we have to apply it to, to gun violence prevention as well. But there is some pushback to that in some states, you know, if, if the gun lobby realizes that uh, doctors are making an effort to talk to patients about guns, they see that as a, a threat to gun sales and gun ownership. Have you seen much of that? And, you know, how has that played out? I want to be very clear that our premise, I speak for myself, I speak for, for everyone in my Center for Gun Violence Prevention, we're not anti-gun, we're anti-bullet holes in our patients. <laughs> and with that premise, how can you be against that? And I think, yes, there are these, there are sort of the political controversies that some stir up. But when these are one-on-one -on -one conversations with patients about how do we uh, keep people safe at home and how do we empower people with the knowledge, with the information, with the resources to, to better care for themselves and their families, there's really not much pushback that we're seeing in those one-on-one -on -one clinical interactions. Mm -hmm. So one case uh, or one instance where a patient, you may want to uh, check and see if there's a gun in the home is if a patient is suffering from uh, some kind of mental crisis. And Ted, I, I know that um, in Ohio there was a, a rise in, in gun suicide deaths, and, and I believe the stat is that 60% of gun deaths are suicides. And it's something that doesn't get talked about much, particularly with the headline-grabbing mass shootings. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what happened in Ohio? Well, first of all, mass shootings are terrible, but they only represent a, a fairly small fraction of, of deaths uh, uh, as a result of gun violence. Um, let me share a shocking statistic. Um, suicide deaths have increased 45% among all Ohioans in the, about the last 10 years. And among youth uh, between the ages of 10 and 24, uh, it's even been more dramatic. Um, about five to six people die uh, each day in Ohio from um, suicide and and much of that is gun-related uh, suicide. One youth dies in Ohio about every 33 hours, uh, and much of that is gun violence. And so it, it, it seems to me that this is an example of how we can take this issue and, once again, frame it as a public health issue and um, perhaps get, a, get away from the polarizing argument that leads nowhere. But if we can convince people and change the conversation and say we're dealing with an epidemic mm -hmm. and we need to deal with this epidemic like we deal with other epidemics. We try to identify the source of, of, of that infection or disease or whatever it is and focus our attention um, in those, uh, those uh, areas. Um, um, I, I saw some data recently from Ohio, from my home county, Franklin County, where Columbus, Ohio is located. And it is possible to look at the areas where, where gun homicides have, have taken place and, and, discrete, and, and discrete areas can be identified. 
And it seems to me that that use of data could be really helpful in directing our resources, our law enforcement resources, our social service resources, uh, mental health resources, uh, so that we're actually trying to do something about gun violence that goes beyond the argument regarding background checks and assault weapons. Those are important, mm -hmm. but, but I think there's more we can do from a public health point of view to actually have a, a practical effect on what happens in the lives of people. I do want to get to Mike, but David, first, I know you've looked uh, quite a bit about uh, suicide prevention and guns. Can you talk about some of the opportunity for partnerships there are? Sure. So, so um, one of the few things we really, really know for sure in this area is that a gun in the home uh, increases the risk for suicide for everybody in the home by about threefold. So it's not a small, small thing. Uh, we've, uh, and, and particularly Kathy Barber and our group, has been, have been working with uh, gun advocates uh, and gun trainers and gun shops trying to reduce suicide, trying to find common ground. So in terms of gun shops, for example, it's not an enormous part of the suicide problem, but it is a part where someone comes into the shop uh, and buys a gun and with that day commits suicide. And nobody wants that to happen, certainly the gun shop owner. And so we've been working, and now this is uh, gun shops in 20 states are trying to do a little something to try to reduce suicide, try to make sure that if a woman comes into your shop, for example, and she says, um, I want to buy a gun, and you say, okay, uh, what kind do you want? She says, I don't care, just give me anything. And he's, you say, okay, how about this? And she says, fine, and, and the clerk says, now how many bullets do you want? And she says, one's enough. You don't need to sell it a gun. Yeah. Um, you know, you should try to figure out ways to get her help. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we've been, uh, the, the, the gun shops really understand this, and, and gun rangers are trying to figure out too how to reduce suicide, because sometimes people go in, uh, the gun ranges and commit suicide, and what little things can they do to reduce suicide? Then there are things. Uh, with gun trainers, um, it's very interesting because there, uh, we've had a real success. And uh, what uh, gun trainers uh, have been focused on accidental gun deaths and not suicides whatsoever. But for example, in Utah, where we've worked with gun trainers, for every accidental gun death in Utah, there are 85 gun suicides. So it's just, this is the problem. The, the accidental guns are a tiny problem relative to the suicide problem. Uh, and we've been working with them, uh, uh, and they've sort of adopted the, what they've, that's been called the 11th commandment of gun safety, which is similar to uh, friends don't let friends drive drunk. This is friends don't let friends who are going through a bad patch uh, keep their guns. And uh, so uh, somebody's talking, uh, uh, just had a divorce, and they're talking crazy, and they um, are drinking. It should be the norm. It should, they should know, and you should, their friends should know, that it's your responsibility to, quote, babysit their gun for a while until they get a new girlfriend and things get better, and then they get their gun back. There's a... They really were involved uh, a lot, the, the gun advocates, in this wonderful PSA, this 30-second PSA, the most moving thing, where you have someone who's clearly a gunner, and he's shooting, bang, 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 and, and then he stops, uh, and he turns to the camera, and he says, you know, last year, things were just really rough for me. That there was, things were terrible, and, and my friends took, uh, babysat my guns for a while. I think they saved my life. And then he turns back, and bang, 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 and it's such a powerful, um, statement because it's very uh, true that this is a way. If you can get a suicidal person uh, away from highly lethal means, uh, you can probably save that person's life. Uh, you know, one other aspect of gun violence that I think um, gets somewhat short shrift in the media is the way that it impacts communities of color who bear a disproportionate uh, amount of the gun violence in the United States. Um, Mike, I'd like to go to you and, and talk about some of the ways that you've seen uh, states and, and people in the federal government build the political will to actually uh, address the violence in these communities. Um, I, you know, I know it's always easier when there's a mass shooting in a, in a suburban sort of heavily white area. There's this mass outcry, we have to do something. That doesn't know, that's not always true in the inner city. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so there are a number of really incredible success stories from around the country that I think help inform what's happening at the state and federal level. And I think it's worth emphasizing that when you're looking at following the data, when we're talking about both fatal and non-fatal shootings, the single largest driver of the gun violence epidemic 
our day-to-day shootings that, like you said, are, are disproportionately happening in communities of color. So our, our policies have to reflect that. And just to give you some quick examples, there are some amazing success stories from around the country. So we just released a report this year uh, looking at Oakland, California, where I live, which has had a 50% reduction on homicide and shooting since 2012. And we really unpacked how they've been able to do that. And you know, if you're interested in the details, that report is available on our website at smartgunlaws.org. I would encourage people to take a look. But in a nutshell, what the city did was, was A, follow the data. They, they did a very in-depth problem analysis that showed that a very small number of very high-risk individuals were driving the majority of gun violence in the city. And that fact is true again and again in cities around the country. And that has huge implications for how you address gun violence. And what they did in Oakland was put in place new systems with law enforcement and, I think most importantly, new systems with social services and intensive interventions that were directed at that high-risk population. So not just waiting for the next homicide to take place, but actually getting very preventative, identifying those individuals and using street outreach workers who are culturally competent to connect with them, direct them to services. And that has a very immediate and short-term impact on gun violence rates. And so to take it to a higher level, that sort of success can be fostered and scaled up by state policy. So this year, just to give one quick example, the state of California increased its investment for cities to scale up those kind of strategies by $21 million, which is a significant increase. And Massachusetts actually, since uh, we're coming from Harvard, I should mention, is really the, the nation's leader on this issue. And I don't know if many people know that, but the state is investing roughly $5 per person in violence intervention and prevention programs that are having a huge impact on gun homicide rates there in Massachusetts. So what we're trying to do is encourage more states to learn from those success stories. Uh, we looked around the entire country in recent years and there's only a small handful of states, California and Massachusetts are two of roughly six or seven that are making that significant investment. So there's a huge opportunity at the state level and at the federal level where we invest close to zero in scaling up those strategies. They are bipartisan. They have, by definition, nothing to do with regulating guns, but instead with interacting with and providing services and support to high-risk individuals. So it's something where we see a lot of potential for support. I think the snowball effect is just starting, but like you said, this just gets lost in the policy conversation. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is, and, and, and a concrete illustration of this, is last year after the Parkland shooting, the state of Florida invested $400 million in hardening schools and improving school security. Well, if you follow the data, there are almost no violent incidents that have to do with gun violence that occur in schools. Obviously, Parkland is a major exception, but following the data, if even a fraction of that $400 million had been invested in evidence-based violence reduction programs in our impacted communities, we could have seen a huge improvement in public safety in Florida. So that was a, a missed opportunity. And we're trying to get the word out to more policymakers that we need to be focused on day-to-day -day violence if we're going to move the needle on the let me, we just got a question in from online as you were talking, and I, I'd like to put it to you. Uh, this person noted that, you know, as you described, sort of learning about the population most likely to be involved in gun homicide, and Hannah, this may be a question for you as well, um, it points to the importance of gathering data. So has the federal government gotten better at gathering that data, and what are some of the roadblocks? I'll go to you first and then Hannah. Sure. I mean, at the federal level, no. I mean, we gather data about about homicides, fatal shootings generally. Like Hannah was saying, we don't gather much data that's accurate about non-fatal shootings. And nor are we incentivizing, a lot of this is local, right? And our federal policies are not incentivizing local governments to do these sort of problem analyses. So part of it is just a lack of investment in encouraging cities to take that first step. But I think Oakland and many other cities show when you take the time, and it doesn't cost that much. I mean, the problem analysis in Oakland was maybe $150,000 for a two-year study that completely changed the way that the city was addressing violence. So much more needs to be done at the federal and state level to encourage that type of problem analysis and then provide support for technical assistance providers to come in and help cities figure out how to follow the data. I think what Mike said is, is exactly right and sort of building on what he's talking about in, in schools and really our misperception of how we think about risk, I think, and, and, and gather data. Every school student practically in this country is, is living and going through these active shooter drills all the time. Yeah, it's just incredible. And I think we are, we have no real evidence that that type of training is gonna make anybody safer. And I think it's our job to figure out the potential harms that, that, we're, that we're really causing by putting these kids through this on a regular basis and making them think that schools, which are 
arguably one of the safest places a kid, uh, a kid can be during the day is, is this place they should be scared of. And I think that's just one example of, of sort of policies and, and people's fear of leading to, to reactions that are not grounded in data and have the real potential to cause harm here. I think that is absolutely the case. I, I, I worry about these young kids who are uh, basically being told to be afraid, to, to wonder on a constant basis whether or not uh, there's going to be a shooting in my school. Uh, I think that could be traumatizing to young kids. Uh, and it's an example of a concern that is misdirected and misplaced. And, um, we, we need to do what, what works or what has the capacity to really make a difference. And we can't do that, I don't think, without accurate data uh, so that we know, you know, as I said in, in my home county of Columbus, Ohio, where are the homicides more likely to occur? And can we put resources into that area, just as, just as Mike has been desc describing? There are things that we can do that can be helpful, but there are things that we can do that are contributing, I think, to the problem and to the traumatization of young kids. I'll, I'll give a little plug for uh, HuffPost this week in a partnership with The Trace. We have a story coming out about the company that uh, runs most of these active shooter drills. and It's coming out on Friday, so I'll direct everyone to keep an eye out for that. But I, I do want to stay on this topic of, of the violence in communities of color. And You know, Ted, you were governor of a state, had a lot of big cities, and also had a lot of rural areas where, where gun culture, quote unquote, was very strong. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the sort of policy making uh, challenges well, that presented? I, I think we need to undertake an educational effort to uh, to educate the public about the Second Amendment, and and even then the 208 decision, which I think was the first time the Supreme Court actually made a definitive judgment about the the right to keep and bear arms without being a part of a militia. Um, even in that case, Justice Scalia, who was no liberal, uh, indicated that this is not an uh, unlimited right. Um, he specifically uh, identified certain things that could be done to keep guns from from people who shouldn't have them, and he mentioned the fact that there could be prohibitions on um, dangerous and unusual weapons. Well, I think assault weapons are unusual weapons, and so. Um, e even for the Second Amendment folks who are pretty rigid, I think, in their interpretation of the, of the Second Amendment, uh, there are things that can be done. We dealt with the so-called Tommy gun, right? Um, I think we can deal with the assault weapons without infringing upon uh, the constitutional right to keep and bear arms, as, as even Justice Scalia interpreted uh, that issue. Um, but I think the NRA and, and uh, uh, gun advocacy groups have somehow sort of framed the discussion so that uh, any effort to limit uh, the availability of guns and, and, and the use of guns, even so far as saying to physicians, you can't talk to your patients about uh, whether or not they have guns in their home. It's, it's just they've taken an extreme position and I think too many of the uh, American population is kind of assumed that you, you can't talk about gun violence uh, in a way that doesn't infringe upon constitutional rights. We're going to turn again to some questions from online, and David, I think this is a good one from you, from Karima, who heard you talk in the beginning about levels of violence relative to other countries. What, what can we learn, uh, she asks, from countries where there is lesser gun violence, and which countries would you identify? Um, so so the, the great thing is that we could learn from every other country. It's not like, oh, <laughs> we, we should learn from Australia, we should learn from New Zealand, we should learn from Japan. There's this whole broad range. It ranges from uh, Japan and England where it's virtually impossible for people to get guns to uh, places where there's a fair number of guns, uh, from Finland to Switzerland to Australia to Canada. Uh, and in all of those, some of the things that make a difference, again, it, it doesn't seem to be our people that are different. It's not like we're more violent. It's not like we're more... Uh, we have more mental health problems. We're just sort of average people, but when you give you know, there are some 
better of us and some worse of us, but when you make it so everybody can have guns whenever they want, whatever kinds, you have enormous problems. So we know that uh, Australia and New Zealand and other places, when there was a mass shooting, they, they tried to do something about it immediately. Uh, and they made lots of changes, and it looks like that the changes were incredibly successful in reducing gun violence and also reducing mass shootings. But the mass shootings gave people an opportunity to say, oh, we're talking about guns now, let's think about it. This is an issue right now we should talk about. And that's, I think, why the gun lobby always says, we can't talk about guns now. Let's, let's wait till no one's thinking about guns and try to talk about it then. And of course, no one's gonna talk about it then. Uh, but uh, I, I would say, if you really you know, push me, what, what do other countries have that we don't have? There's so many different things, but one thing is they have gun licensing. So just like we have licensing to drive a car, you have to have a license to, to, to get a gun. You have to show that you are competent in getting a gun. You need to have to show this training just like you need to for cars. Uh, registration of particularly handguns, certainly, and, and, and military weapons so that uh, we know where the guns are. Uh, and if guns uh, get into the wrong hands, whose gun was it that would be allowed to get into the wrong hands? Or was it that person? Um, and so those are two things which are really, uh, in terms of uh, legislation, uh, government requirements uh, that, that need to be done for, uh, that other countries are all doing. Uh, and and they're, uh, typically also their uh, requirements about who can pass a background check are somewhat stronger than ours. Ours is you just uh, have to pass, uh, not be a convicted felon. Mm -hmm. but, but there, um, in Massachusetts, for example, if you are known to the police, uh, and uh, as a, an abuser and they keep getting calls from your home and you're drunk and you, but you've never been convicted of a felony. Massachusetts police are one of the few police officers who have the right to say you can't get a, get a gun. Whereas in most, virtually every other place, of course, you can get a gun. Uh, I want to go back to Mike because you said something interesting about community violence prevention. Um, can you unpack that a little bit and how that works and the ways that it's been successful? Yeah, I, I think one of the sort of concrete illustrations of this that's helpful is hospital-based violence intervention programs, right? So when we're talking about following the data and the evidence, uh, we were talking earlier about focusing on those who are at highest risk of being victims or perpetrators of gun violence. And data has shown again and again that people who have themselves been shot are at extremely high risk of, be, of being victimized or even perpetrating violence again down the road. And that victimization rate, re-victimization rate, is as high as 40% within five years in some of our cities. And so hospital-based violence intervention programs are sort of founded on the premise that if we can, inter rather than just, you know, providing excellent medical treatment to these people and then discharging them back into the situation that led them to get shot in the first place, let's use that critical moment as a, an intervention opportunity and meet with them at the bedside, develop a relationship with them, using an outreach worker and an intervention worker who comes from a similar community, who has shared cultural experiences, and that can build a relationship that lasts over time so that we're providing services to them over the long term. Not like a one-day intervention or a two-day, but something that lasts months, if not years, to help move people out of the circumstances that led them to be shot in the first place. And that has been studied and evaluated around the country and shown to drastically reduce the instances of violent of, of violent injury recidivism and a, and a host of other benefits, including you know, lower rates of uh, criminalization, uh, attainment and education, and so on. So I think that's just a one concrete example. Those types of programs are not generally widely known uh, and need to be scaled up. As far as I know, there's only about 30 hospital-based violence intervention programs around the entire country and there need to be 100, 200 to actually be meeting the demand that we have in our cities. So there are other examples, but that sort of illustrates the core principle here, which is looking at data to understand who's at risk and intervening with them in a way that will prevent future shootings and help break that cycle of violence that we're seeing in, in our communities. I think that's such a key point, and that really brings up, again, how we're talking about this intersection of when, when patients come in and what can be done in the clinical setting. And looking at, at, at bright spots and success stories, as, as Mike had mentioned earlier, Boston Medical Center in our city has a phenomenal program and has really, really invested in this. And we at Mass General and others are, are learning everything that we can from, from, um, from their program. And, and I think it's just one more example of how we have to break down some of these silos and, and really all work together. Um, and. Uh, be willing to learn from, from each other and, and 
come with humility and to, with, to learn from people who have been in this space for, for decades really doing this work. And, and um, I think that's an, a critical step. So Hannah, a question came in uh, for you from online. Someone would like you to explain how other injury prevention models can apply to gun violence prevention. This person says that most people have no idea what public health practitioners mean by prevention. They're just focused on someone has a gun in their hand and you want to stop them from firing it. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And so much of it is how do you intervene well upstream from that? You know, how do you really intervene upstream from that? So um, think about that in, in so many ways. Smoking cessation is, is, uh, in, is one example of, of really sort of the clinical and the public health really coming together. And the way that I think about that, there's so many similarities. But when people come into the, to the hospital with active suicidal ideation, for example, and clinicians don't ask them if there's a gun at home, that to me is the same if somebody came in with a heart attack and doctors don't ask them if they smoke. I mean, it's one of the number one risk factors for death from the thing that we know that that person is suffering from. And those are intervenable moments. And really the public health approach, applying it to clinical medicine means really thinking upstream so that we as clinicians know what we're looking for. We as clinicians know who might be high risk, how to think about that, and then really are empowered with information and knowledge about how to, about how to intervene, resources, how to connect people. It's not just identifying a patient. It's, but it's also knowing how we can intervene, how we can connect them with those resources, with violence intervention advocacy programs, with other, with other uh, how do we build bridges between the hospital and the communities that, that we are, live in and are a part of to really make that a, a, a real partnership and um, offer uh, people who are, who are coming to us uh, a, a real opportunity. I'd like to do one last question from online here, and it's an interesting one. Uh, it says, what about gun taxes for increasing security in schools or other public venues? Shouldn't gun owners and gun trading groups be taxed for protective services? Is there any movement on this front? I'd like to go first to David to just talk about, from a public health perspective, what taxes could do to mitigate gun violence. And then, Ted, I'd like to go to you after that. Just what, in the political arena, if you enter and say, hey, we're going to tax your guns, how do you think that would play? But, but let's go to David yeah. first. So, so taxes <laughs> in public health and in economics are often used when there are bad externalities. Uh, when you're buying something causes harm to, to other people. So uh, alcohol taxes, for example, are done because people who drink too much alcohol then can harm other people in the community. So, so you want to tax these people. Uh, and uh, there's been uh, this notion of uh, that there are lots of areas which uh, could be taxed, and one is firearms because bringing a firearm into the community has lots of potential problems. All uh, you have to do is ask people in Sandy Hook when Nancy Lanza brought these guns into the community what the effect of on the community eventually was. Uh, and so uh, sugar-sweetened beverages, people have talked a lot about taxing that to uh, get people to eat uh, to reduce obesity, and the same way I think in the gun area is uh, there's some uh, federal tax now and some uh, occasionally local taxes, but you could have a higher tax, which I think uh, most uh, economists would agree on, uh, and then use that money in an earmark way to try to really reduce the problems that these guns cause. Certainly sounds sensible. Ted, how, how would you sell this? Uh? <laughs> uh, it would be really tough, uh, quite frankly, and a lot of the uh, the gun advocacy folks would say, oh, you might be able to tax tobacco or you may be able to tax some other uh, harmful substance, but, but we have a Second Amendment that, uh, that guarantees us the right to keep and bear arms. That, that's the argument. I don't think it's, a, it's an argument that, that need to prohibit us from, that needs to prohibit us from, from taking steps <coughs> to, to reduce um, the availability of guns. I'm encouraged, quite frankly, by what some of the major uh, companies are doing in this country. Uh, Dick's Sporting Goods. I think it, I think we ought to go out and buy from Dick's Sporting Goods. I think I think we ought to congratulate Walmart for certain decisions that they made regarding removing guns from their um, from their facilities and so on. Um, I think there are, there, there are th you know, t taxes is one way, obviously, but I think there are other ways that we can bring public pressure to bear on um, those who uh, sell guns and, um, and, and um, you know, that would really have a, a measurable effect. Uh, and, and I'm repeating myself, but I keep talking about trying to get away from the pro-gun, anti-gun argument that leads us to no resolutions and trying to identify specific actions that we can take. What Mike has talked about is, is really exciting to me. 
um, uh, what the good doctor here has talked about. Actual uh, taking action, uh, doing things that make a difference and move us beyond the intractable argument uh, that, that, um, that uh, over time has really not produced much of a desirable effect. Um, David, in his wonderful book, I, I, I promote all the time, uh, Private Guns, Public Health, um, talked about how cars used to, you know, vehicle accidents took a lot of lives and we, we stopped focusing on the driver exclusively. We started focusing on, on the car. We, we didn't get rid of cars, but we tried to take steps to make their use safer. So we ought to encourage people, if they have guns, to store them safely so that the tragic thing that happened in my state recently where a highway patrolman left his, his, his gun unattended in his home and his young son got a hold of it and, and shot himself and killed himself. There are practical things that can be done, and I think framing them in, in a public health way of, of messaging um, can really move this issue forward and, and, and bring about significant change. Okay, I, I lied. There's one more online question, and it came in as you were talking because this person wants to know, uh, you know, what about the NRA? It's nice to say that we're going to move past pro-gun, anti-gun, but uh, as long as they're still in place, and this person asks, as long as they have lots of money from members uh, who oppose gun laws, is it possible to actually affect this change? Well, thankfully, the NRA, I believe, is losing its influence. It's got a lot of internal problems, as we all know, if you've been reading the papers. Um, and I, th I think that the NRA is losing its political clout. Um, and so we need to keep pressing against them. Um, in Ohio, they're promoting a, uh, a strong stand your gun law, which is, which is madness in my judgment. Um, but, but they're doing those kinds of things and we need to oppose them and we need to you know, be verbal and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and, and as I said, framing things in, in terms of public health is necessary. That does not mean though that we roll over and let the NRA dominate the discussion. And um, we, we need to push back with their, their arguments and oppose them. And um, over time, uh, you know, the, the tobacco issue has been mentioned here several times. They fought like hell, <laughs> the tobacco companies did, but they finally were held accountable. And I think the same approach could be uh, applied toward a group like the NRA. Okay, great. Uh, that question was from Mary, by the way, so thank you, Mary. So before we conclude, as I mentioned, this is, uh, I think the hope was that this would be a solutions-based sort of discussion. And so before we wrap up, I'd like to go down the line and just ask everyone to um, articulate one sort of takeaway, one sort of solutions-based takeaway that people can leave with today. I'll, I'll start with Mike and we'll move down this way. Yeah, and I think this links to that last question about the NRA. So I think for me, the takeaway is, Push, the way we can move forward in this conversation is to identify strategies that have a strong evidence base and that are very hard to disagree with. Uh, and I think community violence intervention programs squarely fall into that category, where there is incredible evidence that they can lead to a very large reduction in violence. Uh, and where we have gone to states to push for further investment, we have either not heard at all from the NRA or the one time when we pushed for this in Maryland and the Republican governor of Maryland authorized a $5 million investment. You can imagine the optics of the NRA showing up and saying, we are opposed to an investment in the of color to reduce gun violence. Uh, that was the position they were forced to take. So I think to the extent we can push the public health framework, it's very hard for the NRA to make a convincing argument uh, that we shouldn't be taking those steps. So that would be my takeaway, is continue to push the public health model. We can make a big impact and avoid uh, a, a polarizing Second Amendment debate. Ted, I'll go to you. Well, I agree with what Mike said, so I want, I want what Mike said to be my, my closing <laughs> statement. Um, um, because it's practical, and it, it's, 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 it's an approach that can have an effect and really change uh, what's happening in the lives of people. So, Mike, I applaud you for what you're doing, for the Guilford Center's uh, excellent work, and keep doing it. Thank you. 
I would say that we all have a responsibility to act and, and, and get involved. And as we do, we have to keep survivors and people who have been affected really at the center of this conversation. Um, I, I would say that there's the emphasize there's so many things that non-government entities can do, like hospitals, like uh, companies. I would say that within government, there's so many things government can do, which aren't just here as we're going to pass this particular law, but government is crucial for data systems. Government's crucial for funding research. Government's crucial in terms of it's a big buyer. The reason I think we have airbags in the United States is there's the first person, first institution to buy lots of airbags was the federal government. Without that, we would not have airbags, I don't think. Uh, and the one thing that I would like the government to do is to hold more hearings about uh, firearms, and I'd like to see the Surgeon General stand up and say something which I think the evidence is overwhelming, that a gun in the home increases the risk of suicide. I think the evidence is stronger for that than it was when the Surgeon General half a century ago said, uh, cigarettes are, uh, cause cancer, and I think people need to understand when they bring a gun into their home that both the benefits and the risks. Well, that concludes today's panel. I'd like to thank the audience here for attending and our, our panelists for a tremendous conversation. Thank you. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.